my name is Sean Hill. Uh, I am a citizen and resident of the state of Vermont in the United States. So I wonder if you could give us a, a, a sort of a synopsis of the Hill Farmstead story. Yeah, Hill Farmstead uh, opened in March of 2010 uh, with just one employee. That's me. Um, although I guess technically you have to be uh, you have to be paying yourself typically to be uh, considered an employee. <laughs> so um, maybe just one uh, member. Um, yeah, we're we're located in uh, northern Vermont, uh, about 45 minutes from the Canadian border. Uh, at the time that we opened, uh, I think there are just less than 2,000 breweries in the United States, uh, likely to hit 6,000 breweries now, uh, I think maybe by the end of the year. My uh, dedication, I guess, and, and overall sense of place um, is what has encouraged me to open the brewery here. My family co-founded the town of Greensboro. In the 1780s, uh, they were one of the, the original families to uh, to get a land grant here. You know, I often say that the uh, that I didn't choose to put the brewery here; that the the place chose me, um, which is which is very true. Yeah. So uh, I personally, I mean, it's difficult to talk about the whole farmstead without also talking about uh, myself and my own experience, because you know, even even though we now have 17 employees. I mean, Hill Farmstead is still uh, an extension of myself, even though I'm, I'm trying to undergo the process of uh, differentiation, you know, sep separating myself from this child, um, which is not, th not that easy. Not because I don't want to, but because it, it's not ready to be separated. Um, yeah, I, I started uh, homebrewing when I was 15, <clears throat> 15 years old. I uh, did a high school science fair project on fermentation. Just always, I've always been fascinated by beer and by really fermentation. So that that led me. Um, it's taken me around the world uh, several times, and you know, the highlight for me was um, leaving my uh, multiple head brewer jobs here in the United States in Vermont to move to Copenhagen, uh, where I lived for just short of two years, um, and and that was. I often reference the fact that I, you know, I, I hit my, if you actually do the math, I hit my 10,000 hours in Copenhagen. Um, and, you know, that's kind of the point where you sort of stop thinking so much about uh, what it is that, you know, like all the mechanics of how to make this thing correct. And then everything just sort of flows from you because it's an extension of yourself, you know, like driving a car or something. So, yeah, I returned from Copenhagen in November of 2009. And I'd met all the all the people I needed to 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 like raise a little bit of money, very very little money, uh, to open this brewery, and uh, get our first uh, first batch of beer in the tanks on <clears throat> March 30th, 2010. And you know the the goal all along for me was was just to be able to pay my taxes and and read and write. You know I live in the house that's 30 feet from the brewery still, but um you know I I, I really like wine and I, I really. My primary focus in a beer is the mouthfeel. To me, that's one of the most important characteristics, and it's quite often what is wrong with 95-plus percent of all quote-unquote craft beer, although I also believe that craft beer doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Beer is beer. So, yeah, so if you, if you read my, like, founding statement, to, um, you know, the goal is to craft succinct and elegant beers of distinction. You know, for me, the, the best beers are the ones that, that really 
seem most luxurious. A very good friend of mine once said that luxury is emotion. Um, and I think that some of the most, uh, some of the things that we feel most captivated by, um, you know, are, are the things that really, uh, you know, evoke an emotional response. Um, and at least for quite a long period of time, I think that our, our beer was, I think the reason that our brewery gained uh, acclaim uh, was that a lot of other people weren't weren't trying to brew beers that were captivating and uh, luxurious and evoking an actual emotional response. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and Hill Farmstead in 2010, I think, was quite quite symbolic. Uh, it'll be it'll be interesting 20 years from now to like write a book about how how all these little things that exist in beer uh, all sort of hinged around that time between 2010 and 2011. And I was at the the right place at the right time. Um, but uh, yeah, people, people weren't, weren't brewing beer to, to like captivate the imagination really. Mm. It was a commodity. And now the bulk of new breweries in America are, are imaginative and trying to captivate, uh, captivate the senses. But the shift that has occurred is that uh, back then everything that I was doing was born out of authenticity. But when I when I said this is a luxurious beer, it was a luxurious beer. Now we've entered in the postmodern turn where someone who's not making a good beer can say this is a luxurious beer, uh, and then people people believe them. I mean, it, you know, you see the parallels on the the, uh, the government is doing the same thing, right? Um, so that, you know, now there is the, some, some collusion, you know, I feel like consumers are really being manipulated. People have a very high degree of self-import and they believe that the beer that they're making is, is better and more important than it actually is. One of the, one of the things that really fascinated me about what you guys do is, is you have a, you have, as, as I understand it, you have a real, um, a kind of a, a kind of a quest about what does a brewery that's really rooted in place look like? What does a brewery look like that kind of links to the local place in the same way that in the same way that the French talk about terroir in terms of wine? Some of the stuff you do around yeasts is a really fascinating. You know, when people talk about using local ingredients in beer, they normally mean the barley and the hops. Could you talk a little bit about about your approach to fermentation and for you? What does a brewery that's rooted in place truly mean? Well, I mean, this my, my thoughts on that topic have sort of um, transformed a good bit over the last seven years. Um, you know, if I if I travel around the world and brew uh, any arbitrary number of, of beers with other people. And, and I put a lot of thought and effort and I, um, you know, bring, bring my own instrumentation and, and I, uh, make sure that, um, that I control and, uh, and hit all the same critical control checkpoints. Um, the beer most likely will exhibit my thumbprint in some way. And that's what I refer to as the farmsteadness, uh, of, of the beer. And, at the time that I finally realized that there's, there are things that I was doing to manipulate the process in order to exhibit the qualities that I hold close to me, um, I sort of realized that 
it, that I just got really lucky when I opened the brewery. And it turns out that the, the things that I had been focusing on for a long period of time, like it turns out the things that, that I like honed in on were thankfully because of some different mentors, the things that I needed to be focusing on. But in terms of water, ingredients, yeast, all of those things, all also the things that I inherited in terms of access to different ingredients, yeast strain that, that people bestowed upon me, et cetera, uh, we're also the right place at the right time. Um, and that, and that it actually like, you know, terroir with beer is, is incredibly difficult to achieve. And I, I've had beers that were brewed, um, you know, with grains or barley, uh, ingredients from the, you know, from the place itself, uh, uh local, uh, locally airborne, uh, yeast, etc. And it doesn't really, Maybe it, in many cases it doesn't even taste good, but it still just tastes like it tastes like a beer. Um, you know, maybe it's because my palate isn't um, isn't refined enough to pick up on the minutia that I need to. I mean, I you know I also wouldn't wouldn't say that I can you know taste the difference between uh, you know that that plot of land on that hillside in Chablis. Uh, with you know that producer's version from the next plot of field uh, plot of land or those grapes and Chablis as well like there, I mean in some cases the minutia is like so it's just so delicate that you know I'm, I I have an okay palate but I, I know many people that have much more refined palates so you know over over the last seven years especially or decade even you know I've I've realized that what it is that I'm doing here. And what I've created, also much with the assistance of my brother, um, who's the uh, the woodworker, the, sort of the true artist of the of the family. You know, I'm, I may be more of a scientist in some senses because I'm like constantly trying to hit all my critical control checkpoints. You know, I'm like I'm like refining a process, and most artists are not focused on refining a process, right? Um, you know, my brother is. Uh, is really like when you look at the aesthetic of the place, it's very much a collaboration between he and I. You know, he's been uh, making beautiful rocking chairs and, and works of art out of wood um, since he was 18 years old. And he's now 33. Um, and, uh, you know, but I'll look at what he's done and I'm like, you know, it'd be really cool if you did this and maybe this and this. And then he does. And then he's like, that's the manifestation of beauty in the form of a rocking chair. So, you know, like, just the the place as it extends from from the self, um, you know. I was just saying, like, luxury is emotion, but but also, you know, it's like there there's there there are certain things that are unexplainable. You know, there's the the je ne sais quoi, if you will, and and it's like you can't explain why. Uh, you know, why that thing looks right in the corner, or why that work of art is beautiful. If you want to go down the, the rabbit hole of aesthetics or a philosophical discussion about beauty, um, but you, you just you just know when it's right, um, and that and that's sort of how things have evolved here is that it, it just feels right inside. But for me, I feel that you know this this whole this whole place and the beer tasting the way it does. You know, I like to say that for me, it is an extension of authenticity because everything that I've done has been guided by principles from my love of this place from my family being here, you know, and I didn't raise a million dollars from investors 
you know, we're not trying to hit uh, some some margin mm. on here. You know, it's a uh, um, it's sort of like just a uh, you know, I'm I'm mildly spiritual, I suppose, but you know, I'm not by by any means. I'm I'm not religious. Um, you know, but in, in some, if you talk to certain people saying the same thing, they would just say that, uh, you know, every, everything has uh, fallen in place and, you know, the Holy Spirit has, has guided me. And that's not me. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like everything has fallen in place and I've made a lot of, a lot of mistakes, but, but I've also realized that I've learned a lot from, from those mistakes and maybe they did happen for a reason. But I would also tell you that if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't do it the same way. So therefore, uh, maybe it's not correct. The, you you mentioned that uh, that the craft beer craft beer wasn't a term that you that particularly resonated with you, but you know whatever we choose to call it, you know the kind of explosion in the last sort of fifteen years or so of people brewing better beers and more imaginative beers, you know that that shift from the seventies and eighties where it was an industrial process making exactly the same stuff in big factories keep the shareholders happy to to what's happened since with all the diversity the incredible diversity i wonder um uh what it is about that that, that you think is giving what's changed that that means people feel they have permission to to do all manner of extraordinary things and do you do you see that the craft beer thing is as in or whatever uh is as imaginative as it was when you came into it still dollar sign <laughs> man that's uh, that's the difference so you know i think that um you know uh most of my old brewer friends and i actually just hired just hired a uh, an old friend of mine who i've known uh, for over a decade to become the the operations manager here um you know things sort of coming full circle um, the, the difference between brewing, brewing even seven years ago and brewing in 2017 is that, uh, there was no money in beer, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, you had to like, it was a sacrifice. Like you were lucky to make $20,000 a year, maybe get the right job making $30,000 a year. Um, but it, it uh, you know, you didn't care. You had enough cause you spend most of your life at work. And then, uh, you know, take your, take your beer home from the brewery and then you make dinner and go to sleep and do it all over again. Um, and it was truly a labor of love and, and beer is no longer a labor of love in this sort of modern, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurial turn. And that, and, and to me, like that is, you know, there, there's this, you know, it's, it's like labor, labor of love, uh, but now there's this new turn which to me symbolizes decadence. I mean, the, the, you know, at, at the point that there's co-option and manipulation and, you know, like it used to be seven years ago, I couldn't find a bank to loan me money to buy, you know, $10,000 to buy a fermenter. Uh, and now, uh, people like banks are loaning millions of dollars to people who are just home brewers. You know, like at the, at the point that that shift occurs, the reasons for people Entering beer are different. Like when the barriers to entry are reduced, such as funding, uh, cost of equipment, uh, government regulations, etc., the floodgates totally open. 
Um, and, and to us that have, that have spent the last 20 plus years trying to refine what it is that we do and we're, and you know, it's an extension of self. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't feel very good. Um, you know, when you, when you, you see pictures on the internet of brewers, uh, at some festival partying, like just like chugging bottles of bourbon and, uh, not even talking to their customers, um, it's uh it, it's it's sad and it, and it's very it, to me it like cheapens this like at one time there was a very select group and it was like oh you're a brewer Rob man like so you too have like dedicated yourself to not making money but trying to refine this thing because there there's this there's this part of you that you know just wants to create the the perfect beer um and now when someone when I meet someone and they tell me that they're uh, they're a brewer, like their friend is opening a brewery or they and their friends open a brewery. Like I, I just typically I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I'm like, oh, I'm really busy right now. And then, and then I walk away uh, because they're, I have nothing to gain from talking to them. And they're just typically trying to mine me uh, for information or, you know, I don't know. It's really feel like there's been a kind of a, does it feel like there are two very distinct sort of uh, there's the very commercial there's bringing in the money and selling through supermarkets and doing that big sort of thing. And then there's guys like you who are maybe taking a more kind of artisan sort of purist kind of approach. There are, there are a couple of things going on here and I'm, I'm trying to jot them down so I don't miss them. Um, The, the difficulty in the age of fake news and this sort of Orwellian spin world that we live in is that just because something looks authentic uh, doesn't mean that it is. Even though they, you know, if people tell you they're authentic, then you know uh, that's that's also not right. So maybe you should already question me. I don't know. <laughs> but you know, at the, at the point that like we're we're in an age where people can pay people to market for them. Um, you know, a brewery that looks like it's bootstrapped and thrown together has a $100,000 marketing budget um, so that they hit the ground running, right? Like, also not authentic. Um, you know, I've to date, as of now, uh, May 12, 2017, I have never in the history of, of this brewery spent a dollar on marketing, and I, and I have no intention to. Um, and to me, that's also a form of authenticity, I think. But um, the, this interesting, at the point that there, there was an interview that I just listened to that I did back in 2014 where I was talking about spirit. You know, like I was talking about the manipulation of words and terms in the world of beer and that how words like rustic and artisanal and so forth and now even the word authentic uh, – those words mean nothing because they've they've been co-opted uh, so much. The word farmhouse, like you don't have to be in a farmhouse to make a farmhouse beer. Like th things become so empty that it it makes it makes it difficult to choose a path forward because you know that you're not empty and you're trying to move forth, but it's like oh I can't use that word, can't use that word, can't use that word. And there's this there's this point ahead. I mean I think it comes after the decline or decadence has begun 
in which spirit itself eventually has to like reflect upon itself and be like, you know, no, no one is talking about the, the decline of craft beer in terms of manipulation of language, uh, co-option of imagination, that no one is really imaginative anymore. Nothing new can be done. So when, when we talk about like artistry and imagination and, um, yeah, really art, like, you know, uh, uh, you, I'm sure you've read Rilke. Uh, there is a great quote in, uh, Letters to a Young Poet. Um, it, it said, it said something like, uh, all great art is born out of necessity. Um, one of my favorite quotes. And that, and that's how I feel about this place. And all of my, my greatest beers and my, my, you know, things that I love the most, they really are born out of necessity. But when people are opening a brewery with millions of dollars in investment, um, and they're just mimicking uh, the, the people who they want to emulate, uh, it's not art, uh, it's imitation. And I've also many times now said that whoever said that imitation is the greatest form of flattery was an imitator. Because <laughs> if, if you're the one being imitated, you do not feel flattered. No. Like, and you know, my, my former assistant brewer who is here from 2011 until the fall of 2013, Dan Suarez, um, we've talked, he opened his own brewery finally. And, you know, we've talked about doing something together, like a sort of collaborative effort, but there's nothing for us to do. Like we already lived out, like we, we were pioneers in, in this like phase where everything we were doing is born out of necessity just to like try new things. But that period of time between 2010 and fall of 13, was that was when all of these breweries were, were were opening, and now everyone makes a citrus IPA. You know, everyone is is making uh, beers that are inspired by the beers that ourselves and other people were making during that period of time. And when you think about like what work of art can we try to make together, like one, there's it's not necessary for us to do it, so you know we're not struggling for for funds, but um. When when the world around you is sort of inspired and born out of born out of some of what you've created, uh, you know you you kind of have to like, you know that's why I think the Beatles and and Bob Dylan are uh, are both kind of fascinating, uh, very popular artists in that sense. Is that there's like a, um, you know there's been like a you know hibernation and uh, reemergence um, and like pushing forth in, in new you know pushing boundaries. I'm not so sure what the boundaries are to be pushed anymore. Um, and I've just, for that reason, been like turning, turning inside and thinking about what we can do to make, um, to make sure that we're sharing this place, um, with people who come here. So how can we optimize our experience experience? How can I make sure that employees are actually happy? Um, how can we restructure and make sure that, that people are living, uh, good lives and not overworked. Um, and that also takes creativity, but it, you know, it's not just putting six different ingredients, uh, in, in a kettle. Um, you know, there, you know, it's like, it's like, um, you know, uh, uh, to just think about like impressionists or something. It's like eventually at some point, you know, it's also like that work of art is your choice of paint, your, uh, your choice of canvas, uh, you know, like all of the other things that, that go into that work of art because, you know, at some point uh, it's not just the, the work of art itself, but it's every single thing that uh, circulates within it. Mm. Um, 
and all of those things require imagination as well. Mm. I'd, I'd, lo I'd love to love to hear your thoughts on faux imagination, faux creativity. You know, like if if terms are if we're in an age where every word almost has lost its meaning and value, what happens when when someone claims that they're imaginative? or they even name their project or their beer imagination, but there's no imagination that actually went into it. <laughs> it's, it's almost like we need, we need to create a new language. You know, like how, like how, how can, how can we move forward in, in an age of, uh, in, in an age where creativity and imagination is actually like, uh, almost like because of people co-opting those terms, um, it's difficult for people who value those things to actually find those things that that they themselves know that they would value, because you have to walk through a forest of uh, the non-imaginative who claim to be imaginative. I've, I've come across things where people are like, "We've you know we've worked really hard and taken everything we learned to to bring you you know one of the best beers that you can ever consume, or something," and then you uh, you open it and it's like. Man. Totally disgusting, even like, <laughs> oh God, like there, there's um, like the the industry at the moment is just lacking self criticism. That's that's what's that's what's sort of painful to me is that you know if if we make a bad beer and and I'm like that's a bad beer, I'll dump it down the drain. Mm. You know, fifty thousand dollars worth of beer or something. Like, do you consider yourself to be an imaginative person? And if so, where, where did that come from? And how have you, how have you cultivated that? I think that at, at points in my life, I've been more imaginative than others. I mean, it, it, um, you know, just in, in, it, in it, you know, there, um, you know, there are weeks where I'm really busy, uh, and I'm not making imaginative meals. You know, I'm, uh, I'm adding, uh, organic frozen peas to a box of uh organic macaroni and cheese or something you know? <laughs> um, we all have weeks like that sean you know and, and uh <laughs> but you know i think that um like like for example it's, it's sort of fascinating for me to to hear my um the the new sort of coo that i hired to hopefully like make sure operations are are you know i'm i'm trying to make sure that operations here are very succinct as well so that it creates more space for me to to return to like you know it, imagination exists sure but when when you're when you're more sort of stressed and your focus is you know is, is out on on the fact that uh, someone is misbehaving or not doing their job um, it 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 creates a blockage you know and I for example I don't unlike every other staff member here I I do not have a commute to work. Uh, really, I mean, it takes me, uh, less than 20 seconds to commute to work. My, my brain just doesn't, uh, you know, it functions quickly sometimes, but 20 seconds is not enough time. Whereas it's, you know, it's amazing when, you know, you just, you have all these things happening around you all day and then you, you know, you finally go on a drive for an hour and you're just like zoning out and then all of a sudden you're like, wow, like, this happened and this means this. Now this, I have to do this. Like, oh my God, I need to pull over and uh, and write down, write this stuff down. But it's fascinating to hear uh, the the operations manager sort of talk about how his his real goal is to make sure that I can quote unquote do my thing and and imagine um, and and focus on on the future and and remain creative and imaginative. 
to use his words. No, I, I have some friends that are really very crazy imaginative. Uh, Gene from Tired Hands uh, Brewery down in Pennsylvania is really imaginative and, and, and an artist. You should, you should look it up. You know, very weird as well. Uh, you know, and, and in that sense, like, my imagination is, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not an architect. I'm not a, or, you know, a buildings anyway. You know, I think that I'm good at, I'm, I'm good at solving problems, I think, in a way, right? I mean, in that kind of, uh, your, your Ursula Le Guin quote, you know, um, and maybe that's maybe that's not maybe that's not imagination uh, at times, um, but but I'm also like able to look forward at at impending sort of problems as I see them. But keep in mind that to me a problem can be um, a flavor that I'm not particularly enthused with in a beer, um, and how to uh, you know how to, how to like uh, set up a, a series of um, of tests or like what, what new flavor we need to explore or looking at a water analysis and realizing that perhaps this one mineral is the, uh, is the, the secret, um, the secret to like making the mouthfeel that I want. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's imaginative. I don't know if that's the, the correct word. I mean, it, it requires, uh, an effort of the mind, uh, and, and sort of a, a, a leap beyond the immediacy. You know, I, I will never be at an end point nor will where I want Hill Farmstead or my life or these things to go really be at an end point. You know, I can't just sort of resign myself to watching uh, television um, and just saying like, yep, everything is where I want it to be and that's good enough. Um, so, you know, I think it takes, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of use those definitions of creativity and imagination, but it seems to take both of those to sort of uh, maintain oneself on a pathway to, enlightenment if you want to use that word and for me that pathway is uh it's sort of like you know beer is very much involved with that pathway um i don't know where it is on that path but <laughs> it changes week to week i guess and then, you know back back in the day i mean probably one of the one of the most imaginative creative like flavor masters that that i knew uh, although times have sort of changed was uh wayne wambles at cigar city Cigar, um, cigar, as in smoking cigars. Yeah, in uh, in Florida. I mean, you know, he, as far as I'm concerned, like he, pretty much single-handedly, uh, really elevated what I refer to as the American-style sweet stout. Um, you know, very saccharine beers, but with, uh, you know, uh, Mexican spices, and you know, doing making beers that tasted like a latte or, uh, you know, Cubano espresso brown ale and, you know, those, those things. But, uh, I mean, and, you know, I mean, and those people are, I think it's because of Wayne that people are making those types of beer now. You know, is, if you... Is he still brewing? Go, is he what? Is he still brewing? Yeah, he is. But, you know, uh, Cigar City was, um, was purchased by the Fireman Capital Group who also, and they own Oscar Blues. So, you know, Cigar, Cigar City has kind of, kind of changed in that sense, you know, and, you know, when, when the period in time where, where I'm referencing is like, they opened in 2009, one year before we did, 
Um, and, you know, kind of up through 2011, 2012, there were still, you know, Wayne was, was really playing around and doing some really, you know, they, they would make like, uh, you know, beer that tasted like blueberry cake or something, you know. Um, and their, their brewer, some of their brewery staff members uh, have, have gone on to, to do similar things and make beers very similarly, like uh, uh, Doug at Cycle Brewing in Florida um, Doug Dozark. So th- this last year, we were we were number one brewery again on rate beer, and Doug uh, and and Cycle were were number two. Um, so they're they're certainly getting getting recognized. Mm. So you know that's kind of you know I think there are people like doing creative things with like foraging ingredients and and uh, and so forth. But um, but as far as real progenitors, I sort of see the people that I just mentioned as very imaginative, creative, flavor developers making beer that is palatable and, and quite good. So if you project forward 10 years in, into the future, do you think that that uh, what started out as a kind of a radical rethinking and reimagining of, of beer and what it can be will just, in the same way that the Sex Pistols threw everything up in the air for for two years and then actually everything ended up being just the same after a little while do you think do you think that beer has changed forever or just that it'll just end up the the, it just ends up becoming a new industry 10 years (laughs) whatever you wherever you want to take it i mean i think there's a difference there right i mean um you know 50 years or 100 years is a blip. Uh, no one's going to remember. You know, I mean, you know, if you just look, look at beer in England, uh, I'm sure you, you've read some of Rob Patton, Pattinson's uh, uh, stuff, right? Like, shut up about uh, Barclay Perkins. No, I don't know. that? Oh, man. Well, he's, he's British, even. Yeah, look it up. Um, but he, he's a beer historian, so... I mean, just in in England, if you if you read some of his blogs, uh, I mean, there there were people brewing brewing beer 60, 70 years ago in England using uh, you know five pounds per barrel of hops in a you know four percent or five percent export IPA or something. You know, I mean, it's all it's all happened before. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, and I've. I've been in the professional side of the industry uh, for like what third going or about thirteen years, and I I thought extreme beer was done. Uh, you know, I lived through the extreme beer craze of oh five oh six oh seven, right? And then it was kind of like, eh, people are over it. Well, now there are people putting eight pounds of hops in a in a beer it, per barrel again. You know, like it. You know, it's sort of just this. It's like uh, I don't know if that's like. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's very like kind of postmodern um, thing, right? Like everything comes back around, but it's a little different. Like those writers, like uh, Calvino and Foucault, or, or not Foucault, uh, Umberto Eco and um, Foucault's Pendulum, etc. I mean, I think I think that's it. I mean, if you look back at history, I don't know. We all we all like to think that we're 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 going to be stamped in the annals and history, you know, the future. Or, past or the books but i don't know i don't think so i mean it's it would be fascinating for you to read a little bit of what uh, rob Patton, pattinson has uh, has written because it 
Mm-hmm. It kind of puts the, the history of British beer, uh, I mean, it adds some pretty fascinating perspective. You know, like the the, the great flood in London when, when those uh, big big tanks burst open and, you know, people actually died in a London beer flood, you know, and that's also fascinating. It's like, wow, like people were making that much beer 100 years ago. Not a bad way to go, though, eh? <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, it's uh, I, I don't know. I mean, in, in 10 years, I think that, uh, you know, given the, the current rate and, uh, you know, I like to say the I, I bet things aren't that different from now in 10 years necessarily. Mm. You know, I, I think the I, what, what I think will happen is different than what I wish would happen. Maybe, maybe not. I, I, w- I would love uh, I'd love the United States to become a little more like uh, Germany. You know, uh, I mean, in. In Germany, you have 80,000 a year or 80,000 hectoliter a year breweries who uh, all their beer is sold within like a 20 kilometer radius. Mm. That is incredible to me. Um, you know, and, and the pub, like very localized beer, very localized pubs. Um, but at the same time, if you look at what community is in the year 2017, <laughs> Community doesn't really have uh, a center, you know, community like communication, the Internet, technology, um, smartphones, uh, chat rooms, Slack, whatever other text messages like community is not the same. Like if, if you go into a into a pub in the United States, 50 uh, percent of the people are on their smartphones um, or more. It's not. Like, I don't know if, if my ideal and what I wish would exist can actually exist um, anymore, right? It's uh, um, people, people don't connect the way that, that they do in European pubs, although I'm sure that that's changing as well. Um, but, you know, is, is localization possible in a global and quick, very, like, kind of impersonal uh, world? So, so, so for you at Hill Farmstead, what what does being rooted in your local economy look like? Um, it's uh, I mean, it's it's it's, for example, providing uh, providing very well paying jobs and, and benefits to uh, children of the of the community. Um, you know, it's uh, you know, hiring hiring local contractors and gardeners and, you know, folks to like work on the grounds, like buying, buying wood from, uh, local, uh, local sawmills. Um, you know, like we're still, you know, how can I say this? When, when, when God is dead and, and things are sort of decentralized from, from the, the church, uh, we move into this age of person-centered civil religion in which uh, craft beer or the Boston Red Sox or Manchester United or whatever becomes God, uh, and then people become infatuated with that one thing. And, you know, we're in quite a rural community, so, you know, we're not – we don't really have like a, a – you know, a, a, people have to actually drive here. They can't walk here. 
so the people that are that are typically coming here are those people who are fascinated with craft beer. Um, you know, once in a while, tourists are looking for something to do um, on a, on a day when they're out traveling. But you know, I'm still trying. You know, other than giving charitable donations to the local community, uh, you know, maybe like employing members of the local community. Um, I'm still still trying to figure out, and I'm a child of the local community, uh, trying to figure out what the best way is to um, build community or interact with uh, the local area. I mean, and you know, you're saying like you guys are using, I mean, we're using fruit grown just down the road. Uh, there are other farms, you know, employment, grains from a local farm, uh, you know, trying to do charitable things, but it's sort of like, Things uh, like things are not the same as they were even 20 years ago. You know, like it's almost like people don't crave or or demand or need that um, social uh, social hub uh, in the same way. And even if there is a social hub, the things that they're socializing about, uh, no one's talking about politics. Like I don't know if you've ever looked at my Twitter feed, but I've had people. Uh, you know, just fun, like, fuck you, Hill Farmstead, like, just focus on beer, don't focus on, uh, is there a young child in the background? I'm sorry to swear No, my out. dog just came in. That's, yeah. Oh, oh, you looked, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say the F word. But, uh, oh, awesome. That's adorable. Um, like, you, you're not supposed to, you're, bi- like, a, a business is no longer supposed to be political. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's pretty easy to realize what my political leanings are, I think. Maybe not, but, I mean, given the last election, uh, I mean, Bernie Sanders is from Vermont. Or he's not from Vermont, but he was our senator. He was mayor of Burlington. Like, you know, it's uh, but it, it's, it's, it's a little alienating to, like, you know, it's like, ooh, Sean's, like, going out there. He's the only, like, one of a few breweries who's actually, you know, speaking out about what's happening. You know, people responding, you know, what what's wrong with you? Like, you should know better than to mix business and politics, which is exactly what's happening right now in the fucking government. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but, but it's like, like, people forget about beer's origins or, like, the, the, like, founding origins of the United States. It's like, you know, so much, so much great work and great conversation was had in pubs. Mm-hmm. Uh... You know, like that is that is dwindling. Um, people are not communicating or talking about their political leanings in in pubs anymore. Um, you know, or over a pint of beer. Like I, I don't know what they're. I don't even know if people are really doing it other than a, a chat room. It's like, what you know that that's like one of the you know the, the great historical foundations of, of beer is that it's mm-hmm. it's a publican thing. Like. You know, people people should be communicating over a glass of beer and, you know, not take it too seriously or maybe take it very seriously. Um, so, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what our place is in the, in the you know, in the community. You know, I'm thinking a lot about the future. You know, I have a good bit of land here, my brother and I, and, you know, just sort of thinking about do we create a foundation and put everything in a, in a foundation, um, you know, so that nothing can be divided and everything is passed on and, and perpetuity. 
like how do we how do we sort of expand the the focus of Hill Farmstead, which has gone from you know this to this, um, to like add educational component or like a very sort of meditative component. You know, if we're if we're doing anything for people that's bringing uh, an element of goodness or quality or luxury into their lives, it's that um, some people are struck by the characters of our beer. And that makes them smile, um, that there's that, that certain je ne sais quoi-ness, uh, that it, that is like something remarkable and, and captures the imagination. But then when they drink the beer here, they're also, especially if they're coming from Boston or New York City or somewhere, it's very quiet and it's very peaceful. And there aren't cars and people yelling and mm. horns, construction and, you know, they're like, wow, like, you know, the, in that sense, the, the quality of the beer, uh, that's capturing their imagination is also in a place that's capturing the uh, the imagination, and you know I'm still trying to figure out how to link back to Greensboro and the Northeast Kingdom uh, as a whole, and what it is that I can do with this um, to sort of better that. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm still not sure, other yeah. than fundraisers and charity, but that's not really enough. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there is a, a little bit of a a crisis uh, soon to ensue. Um, you know, I mean, we're, you know, I was talking about like stress. I mean, if, uh, you know, I think that um, in particular in the United States, like a lot of people are, are suffering from very undue stress just inflicted by the, the oligarchy and the, mm. the, you know, like lack of accumulation of, of wealth um, or the ability to accumulate wealth, you know, like people working, um, you know, working, uh, uh, two jobs while also, uh, you know, not being able to pay their bills. And it's like the, like the only thing that they really have that makes them or sort of fulfills them on a daily basis is their imagination. Mm. And, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of fascinating to think about the fact that, you know, no matter how imprisoned you are, if you're in a prison cell, um, still have your imagination and, uh, and it can't, it can't be, it, you know, it, it, it can't be taken away. And, uh, you know, that's, um, but it's, it's really important that, that people, you know, like what, what, what can, uh, how can I say it? So like, for example, I, um, uh, do, do like donate money to a few different programs in the local area. And a couple of years ago, we, we raised money for the, the local elementary school where I also went. And uh, I, I think it was like $4,000 or $8,000. I can't remember. It was like four years ago. And uh, in my my instructions uh, for the, the earmarking of the funds, because I didn't, didn't just want them to go to like general operating, were that the funds needed to be used in order – to help the children, uh, like, like to evoke imagination and thought, you know, ideally, um, dreams, like how can this money be used, um, to, uh, help, help young children in this area who maybe were never left this area, like realize that they can really do anything that they want, uh, and go anywhere they want. And, and, you know, they can go to the moon if they want to. And, and I feel like when you, when you try to like, you try to think about like what you can do to, 
um, make sure that the future generation is, is like set up for success. It's like, you know, does, does it start in the home? Does it start in school? Like, is, is, is it the media? Is it like, is technology ruining, uh, you know, the ability for people to imagine? It's sort of like, there just, maybe there just need to be more channels for people to feel okay and, and safe and comfortable about their imagination. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I guess it, it's sort of like in, in certain types of education, I believe probably like Montessori and Waldorf actually encourage imagination, whereas public school systems like I don't I don't know other than the, the uh, uh, odd art or craft. Uh, probably, you know, it's other than making sure you can pass the standardized test. Uh, you're not really encouraged um, to use your imagination, but um that's uh yeah there, there are a lot of a lot of parallels there that I was talking about with like entrepreneurs and starting breweries to mimic other people's breweries mm. where is the imagination like where where is the imagining happening here but i mean it, from from everything i've read about uh generation x or whatever it it's called you know the 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 young folks after the millennials is that like their their set of values is their values is much different than, than the millennials. They don't feel entitled. Um, and they, you know, they're, it seems like the belief is that they're, they're much more encouraged to like affect change in the world. Mm. Uh, you know, but what, what can, what can we do as 40 things to, um, to make sure that, that that generation, the next generation is, is set up for, uh, reimagining what the, the future can be.